Hi, everybody. A quick message before we begin today's podcast. We have just released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. Stay tuned for the end of the episode for more information. Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome everybody back to the podcast. So today in the episode, we're going to be talking about speech and swallowing. Uh, my guest today is Shanda Hunter Trottier. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Madeline. Really great to be here. Especially on this uh, rainy spring day. <laughs> I, I know it was like feeling like summer. If you're here in Ontario, it was like summer weather is here. And then it's like, and now have a little splash of like fall. Exactly. It's bizarre. Um, I want to start off with um, building some context for today's episode. Like, can you tell us a little bit about you, your background, your training? Um, and let's start there. Okay, sure. Well, I live here in Burlington with my husband and my two amazing kids, where I've also been practicing as a speech language pathologist for 31 years. I'm founder of SL Hunter Speechworks, which is a private speech language pathology practice. And we're in our 26th year of working with children and adults in the Halton, Niagara and surrounding communities. Our main clinical location is right here in Burlington. And then we have a Grimsby satellite uh, office. Um, I have my master's of science in speech language pathology and uh, have been loving the work since uh, 1989. So heavens, what got me into speech language pathology? Should I go with that? Uh, My late grandmother was actually a pioneer in the field. She was a brilliant and very driven woman who was committed to educating um, not only the public, but also the medical fields on the potential for rehab services for those patients 
whose communication was impacted by conditions back then, such as polio, uh, cerebral palsy, and stroke. Those are the main ones I remember her talking about. And even though I may not have realized it as a youngster, I, I know her work did inspire me. I didn't actually realize my professional goal of pursuing a degree in SLP, I'll call it, uh, until after my second year of university. And I ended up spending some time job shadowing a speech pathologist. And what really struck me at the core uh, was the profound impact that restricted communication or swallowing has on everything we as humans do, right? We're social beings. We communicate with one another. We share meals. Uh, we rely on language to learn and to interact with the world around us. And we take that for granted. We breathe, we eat, we talk until all of a sudden we can't. Uh, so that was uh, something that really impacted me uh, during those observations. Um, so we take it for granted until you know, it doesn't develop as it should, or something derails the skill, the skills that we've grown accustomed to using and have such an act, natural access to. Yeah, I, I say, you know, I say to my clients, like, everything's great and dandy when the bladder and everything just works, right? You don't have to really think about how to pee, right? It's just like, you just do it, right? Um, then the problem comes when there's a problem, right? Then it's like, whoa, how does this work? And what am I supposed to do? And how do I use these muscles? Right. And similarly, you know, I imagine with something uh, happening around swallowing and speech, it, it's quite similar, right? Like we Absolutely. kind of develop it naturally, but then when something happens, it's like, it's so impactful. Mm -hmm. it, absolutely. absolutely. And I think because, you know, so few people have heard of speech language pathologists or um, the kind of work you do, people don't hear about it until they've struggled with it. Right. And it's it, they feel like it's not common. We think it's common because we see it every day. Um, but uh, yeah, it's I think both of us are in very unknown fields. Absolutely. Well, and here's why we're on this podcast talking about it to like make people aware that, you know, there are things that can be done. Right. And, you know, sometimes it starts off with something minor, right? Something minute, something changes and it's like, okay, it's going to go away or like no big deal. And then it, you know what I mean? Time passes. And then it's like really overwhelming when, and because people don't know that they can access help that, you know, oh, these are early signs or there's something going on. They don't know that they could get an assessment. They don't know that there's necessarily treatment available. And so people kind of suffer quietly, mm -hmm. you know, until it becomes really problematic or really annoying or really frustrating or, you know, all of the above, right? Exactly, exactly. And I was going to say when you mentioned there, uh, Madeline, about access to service and knowing that it's out there. Um, you know, when I first moved to Burlington in 1989, I was in the hospital where the acute medical uh, and rehab setting where, you know, somebody has a stroke or, or a severe accident, they're taken in and, and you know that you know that there's service there. Um, but in 1995, I ventured into private practice so I could really focus on a method of service delivery that's accessible, timely and individualized for those who aren't in the hospital as well. Yeah. Can you, um, can you speak to like, what is like from the most basic, you know, what is a speech language pathologist? Cause people are just like, may not really understand. And how does the swallowing come into this? Like, can you kind of talk about like what sort of the going definition or how do you explain to people what it is that you do? 
I always love that question because first it's mouthful to say, right? And uh, even after three decades of being one, uh, I find it really tricky to communicate our role to others, uh, which is quite ironic since we're communication experts. Um, but in plain language, we're regulated healthcare professionals that work with children, adults, all ages to help them communicate and swallow. But what does it mean to communicate, right? So we help clients understand the thoughts and ideas of others and to get their thoughts and ideas understood by others. So we empower individuals with the ability to communicate, use their voice, connect with others. Uh, either, either again, like I said, uh, you know, if these basic human abilities haven't developed as they should or when they've been taken from, you know, by an accident or disease process. Um, and there's certainly other areas we work in that are less known, such as our collaborative efforts with orthodontists to train the tongue for retention of orthodontic work forensic speech language pathology work where we participate in medical malpractice cases, or again in the judicial system where we might be a communication intermediary where we assist victims, witnesses, and accused people who have speech and language disabilities. We help them to understand questions and to communicate their answers effectively when inter interacting with police and, and legal systems or, or justice professionals. Um, but I still haven't really got to the core of what speech language pathology is where we diagnose when something goes awry. So if there's disruptions in the speech production due to maybe physiological functioning impairments, like slurred speech, unclear speech, weak, a weak voice or imprecise sounds, or difficulty finding the right words or difficulties with actual language. When you think of finding words, putting words into sentences to convey thoughts, or challenges with understanding or social interaction might be due to impairments with cognitive processes or thinking, thinking processes. I'm just wondering, uh, does like stutter, like I assume stutter might fall under there as well? Absolutely. And that's kind of one of the more, the more commonly known ones, right? Um, I think, you know, and the, the whole, the name speech language pathology is really not optimal because speech itself is actually such a very small part of what we do. It, it, we do work on speech clarity, but it's small. Maybe what I can do, um, Madeline, is break down what we do into three main streams and then give a bit of information on each of those streams, if that might that, be okay. that would, I think that would be really helpful. Okay, so if we look at the three streams, one would be habilitation services, and those are the services that help a person learn or improve on abilities that they may not be developing. So I'll go into that in a second. Rehabilitation services are those that help people regain skills or functioning they've lost. And then enhancement services are those that help a person polish, polish or enrich communication skills that they already possess. So if we talk about habilitation, that might be individuals born with speech language or swallowing difficulties. Maybe babies are born perhaps with cerebral palsy, cleft lip and palate, various syndromes such as Down syndrome, fetal alcohol syndrome, autism. All of these profiles can include difficulties with communication development. Some children uh, present with less complex delays like speech articulation, we can't say their sounds clearly uh, or language with maybe no other medical concern. And as you said, some may develop a stutter. So we help those little ones uh, um, with their communication development. It's so important for fostering their ability to bond with their caregivers and later to make friends and be successful in school. Okay. And then if you're speaking, we're speaking of school, we think of the pre-literacy and literacy skills. 
Weak language abilities can have a negative impact on any academic success. Um, so we collaborate with teachers too in helping understand where the language breakdown may be for the child that's impacting their learning. And it's really important to keep in mind when we're thinking of these habilitation services as well, that reading and writing are two of the modalities of communication. We take information in through listening and reading and we send it out through speaking or writing. So reading and writing difficulties are also areas that, uh, that we address. Um, and when we think of in this whole area of when do you get an assessment? And when we think of the habilitation, uh, the wait and see approach in, in many instances is really ill-advised because 70 to 80% of late talkers will, or late talking toddlers will eventually outgrow a subtle language delay, but that means that 20 to 30% of them won't catch up. And, mm. when, right? and, how do you, and how do you know, right? That's the thing. How do you know which, which camp uh, or which stream you know, a child may fall into. So even just like an assessment to determine, oh, like, right, because you've seen this, you've done this a long time, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you know, you have ways to assess and see and be like, okay, you know, this looks like this, this looks like this, but in either way, here are things that you could be doing, right, to help facilitate it. Absolutely, because we, we, we kind of have internalized now that kind of intrinsic gauge of what is within the broad range of normal, because there's a broad range, right, of, of what is considered normal, but we, we know what the expected milestones are for each age. You know, some parents will come in and or they'll phone in and say, you know, I have, a, I have a 16 month old, is it too early to come in? Well, you know what, there's things we're looking at for early precursors to communication that um, we start to look for at six months you know, or, or younger in terms of eye gaze and watching who's speaking and, and, and starting to show some nonverbal communication skills. So uh, definitely it really, we get five and six months in the five and six month olds are usually in for feeding and swallowing concerns, but we start to look at those early language markers, right? And you're absolutely right. We're, we're kind of accustomed to knowing which ones do we need to intervene with? Which ones do we say, here are some things to facilitate things within your own natural context, context at home and, and come back and see us in X amount of time and other ones that we can say there's really no concerns at all. Yeah, right. And, and I think, you know, there's there, there could be peace of mind, right? So if there's kind of like an inkling or you're just, you know, if something sort of doesn't feel like it's going the way that you expect it to, you know, like follow your instincts, right? And just, you know, have that assessment done just so that at, at minimum peace of mind, right? Absolutely. And we, we always say to parents, because uh, some will say, you know, I've gone to my physician or my family friends say, you know what, my, my son didn't start talking till he was four or five. And I think <laughs> parents know best. They, they get a sense, even if it's their first child, they, you know, you get a gut a gut feeling that something might not be right. Um, but, and, and peace of mind is huge. Yeah. So that's the habilitation that's process. The habilitation. Uh, and the next one you said is rehabilitation. Exactly. So those are the skills, you know, uh, those are services that help someone regain skills or functioning that's been lost, you know, for example, stroke, uh, uh, cancer, uh, other kinds of illnesses or a surgery that's involved the head or neck. Um, and in, in the case of a stroke or traumatic event, such as a car accident or a fall or any blow to the head, uh, sudden negative changes can occur. And these changes can be debilitating even when they're not severe. 
Um, there may be a disruption in language, not being able to find their words. Um, a lot of people have heard of aphasia um, in stroke patients. Um, can make it difficult for them to find their words and generate sentences. Or perhaps speech patterns have become slurred, or it can just be hard to follow or hold a conversation. Um, Swallowing and communication difficulties are also a significant symptom for those who have uh, those degenerative diagnoses, such as multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, ALS, myasthenia gravis, Huntington's chorea. And in these uh, particular cases where we know the disease process will continue to cause a reduction in function, we focus on approaches or strategies for maintaining function for as long as possible and for compensating for declined function counseling and preparing our client and their caregivers and their loved ones for what to expect next. Maybe if we know, for example, in the case of ALS, where we know the communication is really going to decline quite rapidly, we might want to get some sort of augmentative communication device in place and trained on before things get um, to the point where communication is really, really, really challenging. Uh, and if we ever consider uh, that we, we use communication in almost every daily situation, right? They impact social relationships, participating in school, independence in daily life, and, and even in maintaining employment. So um, it's always good to know that there is hope out there for, for supporting these areas of difficulty. And I would say for this one, for knowing when to get an assessment, it would be anytime there's a loss of function. And the key is to know that there's hope for change or optimizing function. There's so many families that come in, Madeline, where uh, the spouse or even the client themselves will say, why didn't I know this was an option three years ago? We struggled for you know all these years and through all these situations and depression has set in and loss of hope. Um, so knowing that there are services out there that can help is, is pretty key. Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, similar to my practice, right? You know, I see women who, you know, have been peeing their pants, you know, four, seven, eight, nine, 20 years. And, you know, they come in and it's like, man, I wish somebody had told me this 20 years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that's, that's part of why I developed this, you know, the things that I do, you know, why we do the things we do, why, why this podcast is going is to alert people that like, you know, we, we need to spread the word. Right. And that's the, you know, just spread the word and spread the knowledge just so that like, if in the event that something happens, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I remember hearing something about a somebody that does something with language, you know what I mean? Um, and then we hope that it, it you know, kind of is like that little seed that gets planted that hopefully never needs to be used. But in, in the event that it needs to be accessed, it's like, okay, I know that there's something out there that can help. It's so true. And isn't it, uh, I know for me, after 31 years of practice, I still do not tire of every little breakthrough you have with, with a client and when that light bulb goes off. I mean, just last week, I assessed a woman who had had um, surgery for an acoustic neuroma. And it, it so it was a tumor on her acoustic nerve. She had the surgery 15 years ago and has not been able to uh, move one side of her face in that whole, that whole time. So for her, she feels incredibly disfigured. Um, and is very socially isolated, especially now when she won't turn on, turn on the Zoom camera and whatnot. So um, she, she was 
trying all kinds of approaches and told there's really nothing you can do. And I'm trained in a technique that um, I think there's nine of us in Ontario that are trained in a technique that's called facial neuromuscular retraining, uh, where we can help these folks who've had uh, this particular kind of facial palsy. And for the first time in 15 years, after one session, she was able to get a, a smile out of both sides of her face. Well, uh, we had tears flowing and happy dances going. And uh, yeah, so you don't tire of just being able to but how did she find, you know, I said to her, how did you finally find me? She says, well, I was searching up something about the tinnitus I was having in my ear from my surgery 15 years ago. And I kept digging a bit deeper and saw that there was this special facial strategy. And then I saw the name Shanda and thought, oh, that's a neat name. And clicked, <laughs> clicked on my name. <laughs> but I just think, wow, I sure wish I could have helped her, you know. Sooner, right? But I mean, the, the level of transformation that is possible. I think that is like the number one thing that really lights my purpose, right? Like it, it constantly reignites. It's like, you know, cause some days are hard and you know, when you have that moment and you see that person's life literally change from something so simple as being able to smile from both sides or, you know, a, a, a you know, a, a, a woman who's struggled with incontinence for so long is all of a sudden like not wearing pads anymore. And like it, it, because we think of it as just like that particular thing. It's so much, and it's so that. much bigger. Exactly. Right. I stopped exercising. I stopped engaging in social activity. I stopped feeling attractive to my part. Like it just, we think of it as such a small little thing, but it's actually monumental for people who go through this. And when you see that shift, that transformation, mm -hmm. it is absolutely profound. Well, she said to me, you know what? So in eight more sessions, I'm going to try online dating. <laughs> that is like, that is amazing. Right. Those things can make all the difference. Or when your clients call you, you know, years out and say, Hey, just wanted to let you know, this is what I'm able to do now. And I think it's because you know, you helped me way back when you just think, yeah, this is why I do it. Right. And this is why we keep trying to advocate for, for these unknown pockets of service. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So we talk, so that's in the rehabilitation frame. Mm -hmm. um, and let's chat about the enhancement frame. Great, great. So that, um, this is a branch of treatment that's sought out by individuals who are just really wanting to polish or enrich their communication skills. Um, so there may not be anything wrong, maybe nothing's derailed, and they've just thought, you know, this is something I, I want to um, improve on. For example, they just want to increase their communication confidence, or they want to modify an accent. Right? We do a lot of accent modification um, for people who are in, in business, or um, right now we're working with a, a lot of priests who um, the bishop had been receiving complaints that the congregation was struggling to understand uh, the sermons because the um, they spoke English, but they had come from other countries and didn't have the standard dialect. Um, so the congregations were reducing. So modifying accents, improving presentation skills, um, just gaining that professional edge. Um, also, another one is altering communication style to match gender identification is another one that's gained a lot of popularity. And uh, can, you, can you speak a little bit to that? Like, what exactly does that mean? 
Absolutely, I can. This is a this is a an area of our practice that that I well, I love it all, right? Um, so this is what we're we is involved with working with transgender clients who are interested in cultivating a voice and a communication style that is in better alignment with their gender. Uh, and we work with individuals at various stages of their transitioning journey, whether it's male to female, female to male. So we start out by doing a really comprehensive assessment um, of the vocal mechanism and uh, addressing that before we move forward in training. And we gather information on their health and habits and, and what their, their goals are. We, we work on pitch modification, uh, resonance balance, um, speech parameters, even with the different genders, there's different things we look at in terms of how people are, uh, how the individual's hitting their sounds, their, their volume, their inflection patterns, a little bit of language choice, and then even nonverbal communication, the body language and the, the facial expressions and the movement styles that are more in alignment with the gender that they're wanting to be identified by. Um, so it's a, uh, and we do individual work for, for transgender voice and communication and uh, group work as well. So there's a supportive community uh, to support each other through the process. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, there's definitely need for that with just the, the newer acceptance and, and people just identifying differently. And, you know, they're, they're already going through like one aspect so much. And there may be these other aspects that need, you know, addressing that, like, where do they go to do that? Exactly. And maybe they don't even know that that's an option, right? So, you know, everything else they might feel really aligned with, but the way that they speak might be a source of frustration for them. And the hard part is um, uh, when you try to do your own online uh, training or investigating, it can be tough because we as speech language pathologists know that there's more to what we hear in an individual's voice than just pitch. So you'll hear people trying to, you know, force their pitch up and to get a higher pitch to sound more female, for example. And it's not always just the pitch. It's also the resonance where things are vibrating um, and uh, in the resonating cavities. Right. And it's uh, so they can actually cause a bit of damage to their vocal cords if they're trying to force it into a pitch range that's not in natural alignment with, with their vocal mechanisms. So we need to kind of be cautious of that. that they don't end up having uh, voice disorders because of it as well. Yeah. Great, great point. Um, because there's structural things involved as well, right? So it's not, you're saying it's not just one thing, there's other aspects to the way that we communicate. Um, is there anything else under that fall is falling under enhancement? Enhancement, uh, no, I think just um, the other one is assisting with perspective taking in professional or social relationships. Um, we'll have some individuals that uh, are strong communicators, but they'll come and they'll say, you know, I can't figure out what it is. I'm awesome at my job, but I never seem to just, I never can really fit into the social milieu of, of the office. I can't do the water cooler chat. Um, so it, sometimes it's around that social pragmatic piece of communication and we really work on being able to take the perspective of the communication partner or being, it might be subtleties in how they're interpreting what we call super linguistics. And that's being able to interpret the intended meaning. Uh, we use a lot of inferential language, right? We, we use puns, we use idioms, all of these things. And sometimes people just haven't naturally 
picked up on, on, on those aspects. It can be individuals with really high level Asperger's, or it can just be that that's just an area that just isn't their forte. And uh, there's communication breakdown that occurs there. So that would be another one that would fall in our enhancement services. Okay, great. I want to get into some pragmatics um, in terms of like the, like, how does it actually look? Like, what does it actually look like in sort of clinics? So let's say, you know, I, I guess I'm curious as to, you know, what does an assessment, what might an assessment look like? You know, what can somebody expect from like a speech maybe? And like, and then we'll like talk about swallow assessment. So like, Generally speaking, what might the two assessments, if somebody came in, what could they expect it to look like? Okay, so let's start with communication. And I would say that regardless of the profile, we refer to what we do as a dynamic assessment process with multiple layers and multiple sources of information. Um, For example, a very important aspect is going to be the clinical interview. So uh, whether, you know, for children, we always, you know, it's the parent we're, we're clinically interviewing, but for any adult as well, we would look at where can we get a bit of collateral information? Is it a parent? Is it a spouse? Is it a coworker? Uh, other healthcare providers? So we gather as much information as, as we can. And then we get the self-assessment. We want to know where that individual feels they're falling with their communication skills. Now, when we're thinking of something like head injury, where there may be some shifts in self-awareness and judgment, uh, the self-assessment might not be accurate, but it provides us with good information on self-awareness. There's a lot, so there's a lot of information gathering about and what's happening in the natural context, what's happening where you naturally communicate and try to function. We may try to do observations in the school, in the workplace, if appropriate. Then we do what's called standardized assessment batteries. And, and those are batteries that are designed by experts in the field that, have, that are administered in a very specific manner. And they allow us to compare individuals, an individual's performance to others who are the same age and, and demographic to just get a feel of you know, where they're falling, what would be considered average, below average, above average. And depending on the difficulties we're assessing, we may need to look at the physical structures and as well as the function of those physical structures. For example, if we're looking at clarity of speech output, fluency of speech, we really closely examine the three levels that go into um, production of speech, respiration, uh, the breathing powers, the voice. So we look at the respiration, we look at vibration of the vocal cords, we look at what's happening after those sound waves leave the vocal cords. Um, and so again, depends on the profile of, you know, what muscles, and when I do the facial analysis, some with facial palsy, there's 21 pairs of facial muscles that I'm really closely assessing. Uh, when we're working, when we're assessing voice, uh, we have our voice lab where we have uh, diagnostic equipment that allows us to take video imaging of the vocal cords. Um, so for those clients, um, nothing goes down the throat, but we have a strobe that goes in over the top of the tongue. And there's a little camera and light source at the end and it shines down and we can see, we can have a look at what is the larynx looking like? What's the integrity of the vocal cords? And then we take video images of those vocal cords in action. So singers and other voice professional voice users are um, particularly interested in watching videos of their vocal cords in action. Um, 
And uh, our voice side, we also have what's called a busy pitch, which takes acoustic analysis of the voice and displays it visually as well. So the assessment, as I said, is quite a dynamic process and the, the length of it will depend on the nature of the difficulties they're coming in with. It may be as short as an hour um, or it might run across several sessions up to, you know, six, seven hours, depending on what we're, look, what we're looking at and trying to analyze. We also do what's called diagnostic intervention where, you know, we may get enough in that initial assessment to get started on some treatment goals, which we set together with the client and the caregivers. Um, we may get enough information then and there. And then we do what's called diagnostic intervention, depending on the rate and the nature of the response to our treatment probes that gives us a lot more information on how we pursue and proceed with with treatment. Um, swallowing is a different is is a bit different. Um, our and I'm very excited about this. We've uh, partnered with a colleague of mine, Jennifer Horton, with Lear Communication, and the radiologists at Wentworth Halton X-ray, and we have a private swallow clinic which has kind of been on the wish list for about 25 years um, because the wait lists in the hospitals range, our colleagues in the hospitals uh, report range from, you know, three months to 10 months wait to get in for an outpatient swallowing assessment. So what we, there's two streams of assessment. Um, the first part may be coming into the clinic and we do a table side evaluation of how the individual's managing their food. Um, so how they're getting the food ready to swallow, the chewing, moving around in their mouth, getting it to the back of their, the back of their mouth and uh, how, they're, how they're managing with different thicknesses or viscosities of food. And then we may proceed to what's called a video fluoroscopy, which is an X-ray um, x-ray of the swallow and that we do at Wentworth Halton x-ray where we would go in and uh, be able to x-ray what's happening during the swallow assessment. Who, so oh, like what might be some indicators that uh, like a swallowing assessment might be needed? Can you speak to that? Cause I, I mean, obviously it's more, sorry, I should say it's, it might be more obvious following a stroke or following a degenerative process, but are there other examples where it's less, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Less obvious that Absolutely. may indicate some issue? Absolutely. And, you know, um, some signs that would warrant a referral might be like noticing that you're coughing or having to clear your throat a lot, either while eating or after eating, because it may be that for some reason, there seems to be more residue in the areas of the throat that there shouldn't be residue. Um, or after um, mealtime, you know, if you lay down and feel like you're having to cough up some residual food. So coughing, gagging, throat clearing, all of a sudden uh, food or pills feeling stuck in the throat, you know, feeling like <clears throat> there's always something hanging out there or, you know, perhaps didn't have trouble with pill swallowing before and, and is now um, food left over in the mouth after swallowing, because we naturally, our tongue naturally does this clearance effect, right? We chew and it just naturally kind of goes and finds the food on the side that's hanging out in the pocket between the cheek and the teeth. But if you find that there's a lot of food left over in the mouth or bits of food left over in the mouth after swallowing, um, all of a sudden taking a lot longer to chew and get the food ready. And it's just all of a sudden, you know, again, it's swallowing, we take it for granted. Sometimes we're so unaware of a meal that we have. Uh, we don't think about wow, I don't really remember chewing and swallowing, but all of a sudden, if you're aware of, wow, that took a bit of effort 
or feeling a little more fatigued after a meal or less interest in eating because it is feels laborious. Another one would be a, kind of a wet or gurgly sounding voice after mealtime or after a drink. That may mean that there's some, the, we don't want a gurgly voice. That means that the food or fluid is hanging around on the vocal cords. And when those vocal cords open, that means it's opening up to the airway. Um, pain when swallowing. Um, and we find that some people will get a referral from a family member that says, you know, my mom, who's, you know, more elderly, um, just seems to have lost her interest in eating. And it may be that the individual hasn't self-reported that it's become laborious or fatiguing, but they're just naturally moving away from wanting to wanting to eat or wanting to be involved in mealtime. Mm. You, know, uh, you know, the aging, there is something, you know, we have something called presbycusis, we have presbolaryngis, which, you know, aging of the vocal mechanism. Uh, we also have, you know, aging of the swallow, which is a natural process, but there may be things we want to do to make the make mealtime more comfortable, more comfortable and, and ease. So when we, when we treat swallowing and the other, the other thing is there is, are there are treatment options we can look at? Are there certain in the x-ray did we notice that there were certain viscosities or textures of food that placed the patient at, at greater risk for aspiration? We're ultimately wanting to, you know, preserve the integrity of the respiratory system. We don't want to end up with pneumonias. And um, so are there things that we can do to modify the textures of the diet? Are there maneuvers? So sometimes there's different maneuvers we can do with, with the head positioning during swallowing that will help to protect the airway. And we also have treatment approaches. If it's the base of the tongue that's become weak and is no longer propelling the food and triggering the swallow in the way that we need it to, there are some tongue-based um, exercise programs that we can engage the client in, or is the cough not strong enough to help protect the airway? We, we have some techniques to work on cough strengthening as well. Okay. That's good. That's, that's good to know. Um, because we definitely want to keep food out of the lungs and, yeah. you know, we want to make sure that people can eat and people can swallow and engage socially because food is, you know, wh whenever we're allowed to engage more socially with food, um, you know, we want to make sure that that's, um, you know, all the functions are sort of there. Um, can you, so you, you mentioned like exercise, um, what are some um, treatment approaches? Like, is it, you know, just like practicing speaking? Well, you sort of mentioned a few, like, with puns and, um, you know, from kind of enhanced understanding, but what are some other kind of approaches, um, with respects, with respect to speech and language development? Like, are there writing things? Are there exercises for children? Like how, you know, what might somebody expect? So for a child, well, when we're working with our little kiddos, um, a lot of what we do is play-based therapy. So the kiddos, they, they, their world is play. And it's very interesting because sometimes you'll have parents come in and they'll be thinking, you think, are they thinking, wow, yeah, we're just coming here for a play date. Um, but 
kids communicate through play. So we, we incorporate our treatment goals. It's kind of like that philosophy of what is it hiding the peas in the mashed potato or something like that, that people do to try and get their kids to eat their vegetables. Um, we really engage them in play. Um, we don't do a lot of paper pencil tasks. Of course, if someone's working on reading and writing, that that certainly is more. We try to really take a functional approach, whether it's a, a pediatric or an adult. In terms of exercises, again, it really depends on the profile. Um, when we have children who are having difficulty with the motor planning for their speech, um, it's not so much a, a specific exercise, but working movement into. So when we look at kids that are really having difficulty with what we call jaw grading, like if they're, they don't know where they're, you know, from as a physio with the proprioceptive and kinesthetic, you know, where's their jaw in space? Is there, are they holding their jaw in an open position? So they're never able to actually get their tongue where it needs to go for the articulation. So we might, uh, we do a lot of movement work as well. Um, for our fluency clients, it, it is a lot of uh, work around breath control and synchronizing the breath control with the vibration of the vocal cords and relaxation of muscles. So it's so it's funny because again, it's so hard because I, I would say, I still say, I know I've said once in a while, you know, after practicing for so long, if I were to go for a job interview now somewhere and they were to say, okay, if client A comes in and um, they have profile B, how would you treat them? I'd look and say, well, I don't know, I haven't met them. <laughs> yeah. know, because there's something about being in that space with the person and knowing not only what their their physical presentation is but what they're bringing cognitively what they're bringing emotionally to the table it, it makes such an impact on how how you might treat them um i didn't answer that question very well <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I, you know what, it, I, it, you know, I, I think this sort of, um, you know, because people sort of want to, you know, sort of don't know what to expect in terms of a treatment protocol. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's the same thing as uh, from a physio perspective, you know, when I'm answering, well, you know, what's the treatment approach? Well, it's like, well, generally speaking, it might look something like this that sounds super vague because I haven't seen them. I haven't assessed them. I don't know all the components. Um, you know, so usually my response is something to the effect of, well, in all likelihood, there's going to be an education component where we're going to be, you know, teaching you different things. Um, there might be some hands-on treatment. There's going to be some exercise prescription. Again, exercise being so broad. Yeah might be mm -hmm. stretching, it might be this, it might be coordinate, like who knows, but, you know, so we have these vague um, descriptors because I, I and, and the reason I wanted to ask it is to highlight to people that, you know, when we do these type of inter, you know, assessments and interventions, it becomes really individualistic to, ha we have to do the complete assessment. We need to see the whole picture. Yes, we have sort of ideas or general principles, guidelines for patient B. However, until patient B is in the clinic and I am able to see the whole picture, it's very difficult to specify what exactly is needed. Um, so this just kind of highlights, <laughs> it, highlights it. it highlights that truth that it does. It really does. And, you know, and I think the thing that we've always struggled with in our field as well is that communication is not tangible cognition we work with cognition so cognitive because when you think of 
communication, uh, we, we practice in an area called cognitive communication, and that's how are the thinking skills and the underlying cognition being processing information, attention, memory, reasoning, all of those cognitive factors, how are they impacting or integrating with language? Right? It's vague. We can't measure it. We can't say, well, you lifted this many pounds on this day. Or, you, know, you know, it's not really measurable and it's so individualized. So we've always struggled even with how we document the progress, right? How do you, how do you document increased in functional communication and confidence in, in communication? It's hard to put a measurement on it, right? Yeah. So it's hard to put a measurement. And so we try to access through all of these quality of life measures. How has this impacted your functioning in day-to-day -day routines, how has this impacted the quality of your life? Um, and so those are really important to us. So self-reported measures. Absolutely, absolutely. So when we talk about self-assessment, we like to do kind of that self-assessment in the beginning. And then as we're going through treatment, how are you assessing yourself now? You know, what, what has improved? What has changed? What has shifted? And I think, you know, another area that this comes out in a lot is our work in head injury or concussion. And, and I don't know if you want me to. Yeah. I, you know, funny enough, I was literally just thinking I, I, I skipped over that question because just the flow of our conversation. But I was going to just about to loop back and just be like, can you speak to concussion? So perfect timing. I'd love to. Well, concussion was thrust into the popular consciousness like never before when Canadian golden boy Sidney Crosby was benched for nearly a year in the aftermath of concussions, right? So our clinic has long been known for our work with brain injury and the public's becoming increasingly aware of the fact that concussion is a mild brain injury. Um, so following a, a concussion, most individuals tend to recover as we read within six months or at most a year without residual cognitive difficulties. However, the literature, literature also points out that there's a small percentage um, who do not fully recover from those mild brain injury symptoms or concussion symptoms. 25 to 35% of patients uh, who do not fully recover, um, they still complain of dysfunction, you know, three to six months post. And 5 to 15% of all mild brain injury patients might experience persistent symptoms past six months and some indefinitely. And it's always fascinating for us because someone will come in with a concussion and it's considered mild, but they may be the ones that fall in that small percentage that have such significant functional impact, whether it's severe post-concussive headaches, pain, you know, all of these things that are impacting um, their cognitive function as well. Um, when we think of cognitive, cognitive communication difficulties, it's using our thinking skills, as I said, to communicate. So for example, can't seem to concentrate or pay attention, lose the flow of conversation, can't stay on topic. They're told they interrupt conversations, um, can't focus or keep up in a meeting or in a lecture if they've gone back to, to university or school, can't tolerate being in a noisy restaurant, not that we have the opportunity to do that right now, um, can't think on the spot that like you used to. I've had some clients who are, you know, one fellow was a, a courtroom trial attorney, and he just said, you know, I can figure out what I need to for my case, but when I go into the courtroom, I don't have that it factor. I can't think on the spot. I can't work the room like I used to. Uh, words aren't flowing, have trouble um, organizing big tasks. So those are some of those persistent uh, concussive uh, uh, symptoms that 
you know, we, we can really help. We we're especially trained to, t- to treat these residual issues. We get people back to school, back to work, back to social. Um, and we develop, help them develop memory strategies or uh, workplace accommodation strategies and, and, uh, try to get them back on track. And I think, again, when you mentioned that education piece, right? It's so many people, um, you know, if they've been in an accident, for example, and they have some orthopedic injuries and they've recovered from that and they're able to go back to what they were doing, those very subtle cognitive symptoms go, you know, they're, they're missed because, you know, most of the time, if it's a car accident, a lot of our clients have walked away from the scene of the accident. They've had their spouse come and pick them up. They were in a fender bender. Um, the classic profile of concussion is you don't lose consciousness, right? Your, your Glasgow coma scale, the old Glasgow coma scale, 15 out of 15. Um, you don't, it, nothing shows up on neuroimaging, Right. So um, those are the ones that are often missed. And if they have the persistent symptoms, those are the ones that tend to slip through the cracks, too. Yeah. Good. Good to just be aware of uh, of that fact. Right. Especially, you know, for other therapists who may, you know, physiotherapists or OTs that may be working, um, you know, post uh, post car accident that, you know, to keep a you know, keep an eye out. Um, but I guess it could be challenging because we didn't know the person before. So absolutely. absolutely. Right. And that's where the, the self-report and the collateral report from spouse or parents or teachers, right? We have, when it's someone at school, we get a lot of input from the teachers too. All of a sudden, you know, they've gone back, they have returned to learn, but you know, things are slipping. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, when you think of it, the impact of the stress, the post-traumatic stress and how that impacts emotion and, you know, pain symptoms, if there's neck pain or head pain, all of those things also um, impact, can impact cognitive. So cognitive communication, our approach is different because there's not perhaps, you know, an organic um, medical piece, but the, the cognitive communication can be impacted and we just approach it differently in treatment. Yeah. I wanted to ask about, cause you mentioned, you know, in this podcast, like private versus in hospital and is in hospital is, you know, we, we know that in hospital is always a significant wait time, which for some people is too long, right. Uh, depending on the severity of the symptoms that they're feeling. So how does it work in, in like private clinics? Is it insurance? Like, is are we talking more insurance based? Is insurance covering speech language pathology? No. Well, okay. Yeah, well, unfortunately, speech language pathology services aren't covered by OHIP. Um, even in the hospital setting, it's covered under hospital budgets. So often, that's why it's those are, services are cut, right? If they're having to make budget cuts. Many of our clients have extended health benefit packages, so employee benefit packages that will cover just like with physio or um, chiropractic or psychology, a certain amount per calendar year per family member. Um, Some of our clients receive rehab funding through auto insurance. So if we're seeing someone who's in in a car accident or maybe injuries sustained at work would be WSIB for workplace injuries. Um, But a lot, you know, people that don't have um, private plans or it's not auto insurance, it is, it is fee for fee for service. Um, but you know, the example with the swallowing clinic, um, 
And we always encourage, I should back up too, we always encourage our clients to get on lists for publicly funded services. For example, if we get uh, preschoolers referred here, we'll say, are you on the wait list for the preschool initiative? For example, Erin Oak Kids. Um, and if they say no, we say, well, you know, why don't you, why don't you get yourself on the list? And then, you know, if your name came, comes up and you need this, great. So what we sometimes do is bridge it, right? So until we, we try to get things going until they come up on the wait list, um, if they only get a, a block of service through the program, we, you know, if, the, if we collaborate with those uh, providers as well, so that there's a collaborative approach uh, to the service. Um, but it's just the nature of the beast. And you know, I've worked in the hospitals too, and it was, I felt very relieved if I knew that somebody could also access some private. I mean, that was back in the day when there wasn't really such a thing uh, as private, but I remember people bringing in private nursing even, right? So if we didn't feel that they had enough nursing um, with the inpatient service, some families would have higher private nursing to come in to help through the night. Um, it's... Uh, it's tough though. You know, I think for example, that one fellow we got in through our private swallow clinic, he was on a wait list. He was on, sent home from inpatient service on a feeding tube. He was in his forties and uh, all he wanted was pasta and beer, but he was non-oral only tube feed and told that he needed another swallowing assessment before they could take the tube out consider taking the tube out. And it was going to be six months. So we got him in, uh, in 10 days. We got him in in 10 days, had the assessment, found that it was safe to get him, transition him off the feeding tube. And we were able to say, you can go home and have pasta and a sip of beer. (laughs) (laughs) Just a sip. Um, But those are the things that, you know, access. And that's what drove me into private way back then was um, individualized, timely, accessible service for, for those who would like to access it. And the problem is there's a lot of people that would access it that don't know about it. That's the key, right? The not I'm, not a, I'm not a marketer. I'm not in marketing. Yeah. Right? You know? Most most of us healthcare providers in the private sector are not, right? That's not. Right. We don't get taught any of that in, um, you know, in school. We get taught the technical skills of what it is that we're particularly uh, doing. So it makes it challenging and very difficult for us to, you know, articulate and, you know be the marketing voice, but we know that we have something transformational to offer. We know we can make a big difference. And so we fumble around with it. (laughs) And I don't even, you know, and I always say too, um, that for me, it's not about whether they come to our agency. It's about whether they just know that it's, there's an option, there's an option, right? And I always say, I sound like Martin Luther King when I say, I have a dream, because I do, I have a dream. And I remember Martin Luther King said that in his speech, but my dream is that A, everybody knows what a speech language pathologist is so that if they have barriers, they know that we're, we're the ones that can help them. And B, they have access to the service to, to foster um, foster their their progress and meet their goals. So. That's my dream. Maybe, Amazing. Maybe before I retire, it'll come true, but that's yeah. getting closer. <laughs> well, it's not time yet. So where, you know, where can people find you and follow you? Or if they're in the local area and want to get an assessment, like give us the details. Okay. Well, our main clinic site is here in Burlington on Harvester Road, 5195 Harvester Road. Um 
Easy to call in, 905-637-5522 is our phone number at our main clinic. We also have a satellite clinic in uh, satellite office, I should say, in Grimsby. Uh, our website, www.slhunterspeechworks.com. Um, people can book an appointment, like send for information right on the website. Uh, we don't have an automatic book an appointment because we need to do some work around figuring out who they'd be best suited to see. Some of our clinicians are strictly pediatric, some adults only, some a mix, and have their areas of focus. Um, most of our team members, including our admin, have been with us 10 plus years. So it's a really tight team and we work really well together. And uh, one of our goals is really, again, trying to make that proper connection with the client and the clinician, not only from cl clinical skill sets perspective, but from a kind of chemistry and personality perspective. But I'd say yeah, um, either phoning in, asking to speak to one of our clinical coordinators about their, their concerns, and um, then we can help troubleshoot, you know, if they need to book an assessment. Right now we're doing, um, we encourage anybody who would benefit from virtual during the COVID-19 restrictions to, uh, we do virtual, but we also do in-person. A lot of our clients, either their profile isn't suitable to virtual, virtual care, or we can do a part of their assessment virtual and part in-person. Some things we really need to get our hands on. Yeah, and have a look, get our hands exactly. On. But it's great to know that there is some component of virtual or that there's that option um, available to people who um, want or need it to be mm -hmm. done that way. And then just reserving the in-person stuff for the in-person uh, pieces. Amazing. And so what we'll do is we will post um, the address and the phone number and the website in the show notes to make okay. it super easy for people to, you know, uh, get that number. It's like, wait, what did she say? I gotta, you know, I gotta go back and re-listen. We'll put it in the show notes. It makes it super easy for you to access that. So in the podcast description, um, I want to thank you so much for taking time to educate, you know, myself, number one, um, but everybody else that's listening to the podcast about what it is that you do. Um, because again, it's, it's hopefully you don't need it. Um, but if you do, or a family member or a friend or somebody needs it, at least there's an awareness that like this exists um, and that it can help with X, Y, or Z. So people know and are hopeful that like there's something that can be done. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Any time to chat about, even though some of it's hard to answer specifically, um, any opportunity to chat about uh, what speech language pathologists can offer is uh, greatly appreciated. So I really appreciate your time as yeah. well. Thanks. And of course, we want to thank all of our listeners that join us, you know, on a on a weekly basis. And if you are a first time listener, you know, subscribe to the podcast every week. We um, highlight a different topic with a different practitioner or a different individual in an in a area of health and wellness, um, you know, it, because really this podcast is about living a better life. And so it's broad and health is a moving object and it's dynamic. And so we have a variety of different discussions here. And of course, uh, I encourage you to also share out this podcast, right? We need people to be aware of um, this service because uh, we never know when we might need it. So having just that little seed planted just in case is always a great idea. On that note, we wish everybody a great day and we'll connect again on the next podcast. Bye for now. 
Hey guys, thanks for hanging out. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we have recently released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. And in this mini training, I take you through what pain is, how labor pain is different than like an acute ankle sprain type of pain. I talk about the three different ways that you can work with pain. And then at the end, I actually teach three different ways that you can work with labor pain to have a more positive birth experience. If you would like to access this free mini training, you can go to courses.ecophysio.com forward slash mini training, or you can look in the description of today's podcast episode At the end of the description, a link will be there for you to get the free mini training. Hope to connect with you there. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.